8, Romans uh, chapter 8 this afternoon, and we continue uh, in our study of the book of Romans, and this afternoon we want to look at the distinction of the spirit life, the distinction of the spirit life, and uh, we've been looking at various aspects of the spirit life, the deliverance, the differences, the delights, the diligence, and the termination, and this afternoon, the distinction of the spirit life. Of all the promises that are made to a child of God relating to our salvation, to me the most precious is the fact that those who are saved by grace are saved forever. Of course, I'm referring to the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. I know that many will take various passages of Scripture and and kind of string them together to try to prove that a person can be saved today and lost tomorrow. And I realize that, but uh, what I want to know is this, why? Why not just let the Bible say what it says and rejoice in the fact that if you've been saved, you'll always be saved. And that's what these verses are all about. Uh, Romans 8, uh, 31 uh, through 39. Now, if you had none other, uh, none of the other precious passages of the Bible on security, uh, uh, se- eternal security, like John 3.16, for instance, or John 5.24, uh, 1 Peter 1.5, Romans 8 would be sufficient to make that doctrine crystal clear. And as we bring our study of this particular chapter to a close, Paul tells us that uh, there is a distinction of the spirit life. And there is one thing that sets the Christian or Christianity apart from the rest of the belief systems in the world. And that thing is a distinctive plan of salvation that guarantees absolute eternal security to everyone who's saved thereby. And so we're going to look at these verses and allow the Lord to teach us that if we're saved, we are indeed secure. Uh, that's why the first point would be secure by the labor of Christ. Now, we ended the last study with this question in verse 31. What shall we say then, uh, what shall we then say to these things, if God be for us, who can be against us? And of course, the answer uh, to that is, you know, praise God, if God be for us, uh, then uh, no matter who is against us, uh, we still have uh, God, and uh, that means we could uh, shout glory, we could shout hallelujah. Uh, what more could we say? But God, or Paul, uh, uh, goes on to underline our wonderful security in the Lord by several important things that we need to consider. Number one is his interest in me, his interest in me. <clears throat> Again, verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? According to what we've already learned in this chapter, we are partakers of a wonderful salvation experience that forever changes us and places us into the family of God. Paul's question reminds us of those things and it teaches us that God is infinitely interested in each one of us. His interest is seen in the fact that he loved us before time even began and formulated a plan to bring us to himself. He knew this, he knew us, and yet he loved us and made a way for us to be saved by grace. And that proof, that is proof that he is interested in each one of us. Notice again the last part of this verse, verse 31. If. Now, Paul's if is not an if 
of possibility. He's not questioning whether or not God is for us, but he is stating the fact that God is on our side. Therefore, no one can stand against God and no one can stand against us. And so regardless of where you are in your life this afternoon, God is interested in, in you and in your soul. <clears throat> he cares for you. And because he cares, you can walk in victory in every circumstance of life. 1 Corinthians 15.57 says, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. <clears throat> His interest in us secures us. Secondly, his investment in us. In verse 32 it says, He that spared not his own son. How wonderful that is. He did not spare his son. He spared Abraham's son, but not his own son. He gave his son to die for us. Because God loves sinners so much, he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And when Jesus died, he became sin for you and me, and he was judged in our place. He made the ultimate investment in you and me. He laid down his life for those he loved. John 15, verse 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, and verse 8 says, he, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And since he gave his Son to die for us, he will give us all things that we need. I didn't say what you want. I said, what you need, right? There's a difference. And uh, somebody might say, well, uh, but I'm not able to hold out. <clears throat> well, he's going to do that for you as well. His sheep are safe, and it's not because they're smart sheep. Cheap. Uh, ever wonder why we're compared to sheep in the Bible? Well, as one sheep rancher said, it's because sheep are stupid. Uh, he didn't mince any words, did he? They are defenseless. Uh, they don't have sharp claws. They don't have fangs to protect themselves. They can't even run very fast. That's what sheep are like. They're little, help, old, helpless animals. Now, are they safe? Yes. Not because they're smart, but because they have a wonderful shepherd. And it's the same for you and me. We're safe because we have a wonderful shepherd. The provision of his life for mine was an investment in my salvation. And when I received the finished work of Jesus uh, as payment of my own salvation, I also received the dividend of that initial investment. When I trusted Jesus to save me, his death became my death. His payment became my payment. At that moment, all the books were balanced and I was set free from the debt of sin. I owed the Lord and I was forever saved by grace. Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14 says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all transgressions, trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. I am secured by his investment in me. And then thirdly, we notice the, uh, the labor of Christ is his intentions for us. In verse 32, he goes on to say, 
but he, de- but delivered him up for us all. How shall we, he not with him with also freely give us all things? Paul asks another question here. He wants to know what that if God would pay this high price to save us, did not he plan to do something with us? And the answer is, of course, he has a plan. Uh, he has a plan for every one of his children. His plan is to take us all to be with him in his home in heaven. And this was the prayer of Jesus, and this is the plan of God. John seven or seventeen twenty four, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. God did not give a single one of us to lose us along the way. We are kept by his power. First Peter 1 and verse 5 says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We are destined to be with him in heaven someday. In fact, the proof of that is seen in the fact that we are already considered to be there right now. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 says, And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, the phrase, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things, here in verse 32, uh, was illustrated by uh, the great D.L. Moody. He said, suppose I go into the finest jewelry store in the land and they bring out the loveliest diamond and the owner says, it's yours. And I say, you don't mean that you're giving me this valuable diamond. He says, yes, I'm giving it to you. And if he gave it to me, do you think I would hesitate and ask him for a piece of brown wrapping paper to wrap it up and take it home with me? My friend, since God gave his son to die for you, don't you think he's going to give you everything that's necessary in this life and the life to come? His intentions for each one of us is to bring us home to glory and nothing will stop that from taking place. We will be with him in that land. Ephesians 2.7 says that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And so we see his interest in us, his investment in us, his intentions for us, and then fourthly his insistence concerning us. Verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Here's another question asked by Paul. He wants to know who has the right to say that we are guilty before God. The problem is a lost world sees those who claim to know Christ. As they view their lives, they see within us characteristics and traits of our old sin life. And they see us and how we live. And then they wonder, how can you claim to be saved. And the fact of the matter is, God's children ought to live lives that are different from the world, and they are watching everything that we do. You see, Paul's point here is that no one has the right to place anything on our account before the Lord. No one, not even the devil himself, has the right to accuse the redeemed of sin before the Lord. Why is that? It's because when we trusted Jesus for salvation, God justified us. 
He did not just take away our sins, but He declared us to be righteous. He took all that sin that was on my account and He transferred it to the account of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's paid forever. Then He took the spotless righteousness and holiness that is in the account of Jesus and He applied it to my account. And on that basis, He declares us to be right with God. Now, you know, there are times when you and I don't act very saved, do we? You know, if a lost person were watching our walk, they might conclude that we're just as wicked as they are. However, what they cannot see is the fact that a transaction took place in heaven one day and that every child of God has a righteous, uh, righteousness as he or she is as righteous as he or she will ever be. One of these days, this flesh will be changed, but until then, we will still uh, be declared just by the power of God. We are secure because God says we are secure. And that ought to give us great comfort. That ought to give us great uh, uh, joy to know that we are secured by what Christ has done for us, the labor of Christ. Secondly, we are secure by the life of Christ. Notice verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that, die, that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now this verse asks another very important question. It's related to the matter of security. Does anyone have the right to judge the believer and find him worthy of judgment? Can anyone point a finger at a redeemed sinner and condemn them to hell? Paul answers that question here. He answers it by, first of all, telling us the price he paid on the cross. The price that Jesus paid on the cross. Who has the right to condemn us since it was Jesus who died for us? The answer is no one. His death on the cross took care of that sin debt. The sin debt of every person who has accepted Christ as their Savior. Since he died and paid the price, no one else has the right or the power to judge you and me. Secondly, the power he displayed at the tomb. Of course, we know that just three days after he died on the cross, he vacated that tomb forever. He arose from the dead. He lives the fact that he lives gives us hope for our future. But it also lets us know the same power that brought him back from the dead was at work putting away our sins. And therefore, no one has the right to judge the redeemed saint of God this afternoon. And then thirdly, the position, uh, the position he holds at the throne. After the resurrection, Jesus ascended back to heaven and sat down at the right hand of, the, of God. According to Hebrews 10:12, it says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice of sins for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And there he continually makes intercession for the redeemed. That is, Jesus, our advocate, our representative before the Father in heaven. The word advocate refers to one who pleads the case of another before a court of law. And in the courtroom of heaven, uh, Satan accuses the redeemed, and Jesus, the advocate, defends us before the Father, and the Father always dismisses the case because the crimes have already been paid for. God is a just God, and he will allow no such thing as double jeopardy. 
Thank God that when the world, the flesh, and the devil try to accuse us before the throne of God, we have one who stands in our place to defend us. What exhibit does he use for our defense? The marks of the cross in his body prove the price that had been forever taken care of and the believers are free. And because he lives, no one has the right to accuse us before the throne of God. No one has the right to judge the redeemed sinner. So we're secure by the labor of Christ, we're secure by the life of Christ, and then thirdly, we're secure by the love of Christ. Now Paul moves into the circumstances of life that cause us problems and cause us trouble. He tells us that what sin could not and what Satan cannot do, even the terrible situations of life cannot take away our security. In this context, the term love of Christ refers to our salvation. It speaks of our special relationship with God. Notice first, his love is enduring. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Regardless of what we face as we go through life, nothing we face is able to come between us and the love of God. His love will endure through anything at all. So we should not get caught up in the things that happen and, and feel that God has forsaken us. He loves us. He's promised us that he will be with us until the very end. And we can claim his wonderful promises of God concerning this. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Hebrews 28.20 says, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the, the world. Amen. Or so be it. His promise is that nothing will be able to come between us and our Lord. And by the way, the word separate, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That word separate is a very strong word. It carries the idea of departing or dividing asunder. Regardless of what happens in life, nothing, you hear me? I said nothing, nothing can, uh, uh, that man can do to you can come between you and what you have in the Lord Jesus. His love endures all and makes us secure. Now, I'm afraid many times we live kind of soft lives, don't we? Uh, we haven't been persecuted like some of the Christians in this world have. And you might think, well, you know, Satan has come between them and God. No, not even that persecution can separate them from the love of God. And if it ever comes to us, we need to remember that nothing can separate us from that love. So it is enduring. Secondly, it is enabling. Verse 37, Nay, in all things, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Paul moves on to tell us that through the things, we are overwhelming conquerors. We are super conquerors uh, when we face the battles of life. You ever want to be a superhero? Well, here's your chance. Uh, super conquerors. Uh, why? Because he lives within us and enables us to stand. You see, the genuine believer proves that he is real by the life that he lives. 
If the things of this world, such as were mentioned there in verse 35, can come between us and our living God, then we're probably not saved to begin with. If a professing Christian can walk away from the things of God and live in persistent sin, that person did not lose their salvation. They probably never received it in the first place. It's true, Bible salvation will produce and endurance in the saint of God, and some people call it perseverance, but the true child of God is enabled by the prevailing love of God to carry on until he calls uh, you home or to glory. Now, when you're able to weather the storms of conflict or affliction or turmoil or persecution, and you want to live for Jesus, that's a good sign that you've got the real thing. When everything that comes along blows you off course, well, you'd better check up. According to this verse, the love of God enables us to persevere or enables us to endure until the very end. And then thirdly, his love is everlasting. Verse 38, And I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful verses. Paul closes this chapter by speaking of his own confidence in his security and in that of the redeemed. He tells us that what we have is not a hope so thing but something that we can be confident in. He tells us that there is nothing from the beginning of our life with God until the end of our life that will ever be able to separate the believer from salvation that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. He says he is persuaded. He is persuaded. That's a deep expression of, uh, expression of deep spirit produced inner assurance. It's not just a theory, but Paul was speaking from experience. And you notice that Paul looks everywhere for something to separate him from the love of God. You look at the phrases there that indicate God's everlasting love. There's neither death nor life. He says, neither death nor life. Death nor life can, are both powerless to harm any, anyone eternally uh, who has trusted Christ. The Lord himself died and by his resurrection destroyed death's power. Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7 says, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Even the most trying experiences of life are unable to break the bond of love between God and us. Notice he goes on to say, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. Reference to supernatural things that are both good and evil. Holy angels, of course, would do you no harm, but there's an organized kingdom of Satan with its principalities and powers that's already been conquered by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.8 says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Colossians 2.15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And then there are the defeated foes. They are defeated foes. And then he says, nor things present, nor things to come. This refers to the dimensions of time. 
Even after the present planetary system has burned with fire and the new heavens of earth appear, the same unchanging God who loves us through Christ will still be the universal sovereign. He's the Lord of time and eternity. Nor height nor depth, knows, nor height nor depth could mean the declaration that nothing in the expanse of space can bring real harm to the child of God. Where Paul could be using the words of the astrologers of his day, the word height is the word uh, that indicates the time a star was in its zenith, when its influence was the greatest. The word depth is a word which refers to a star at its lowest point. Paul declares that believers need not fear that the stars in their movements can bring harm to us. By the way, don't bother reading your horoscope in the newspaper. It's not worth your time. Read the Bible instead. That's much more profitable. And then, nor other any or nor any other creature. These words leave absolutely no possible loophole. Nothing in the entire universe, nothing can separate us from the love of, uh, of God in Christ. God's love for us has been proven. It will never change. It will endure through life's most distressing circumstances. Now, you've heard that this afternoon, and you've heard many, many words like, you know, never change, and, and uh, it's impossible to, for, to be separated from Christ's love. Think about that the next time you start worrying about something. Start worrying about uh, uh, some difficulty in your life or some, uh, somebody uh, upsets you. Uh, we need to remember this. These are wonderful declarations to us. And he asks questions to us and he then declares the answers to us. And these verses give us great shout for triumph. When everything is added up and all these truths are digested, it becomes clear that in Jesus we have absolute, eternal security. The believer can need, need never fear anything coming between himself and God's salvation. If you're saved, you're saved forever. And therefore we can say with all assurance of our souls, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into the within the veil, Hebrews 6.19. And we can say, uh, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and he shall trust, thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, destroy them, Deuteronomy 33.27. Uh, and, and then also, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. Don't lose sleep over these things, folks. Sleep. You know, not now. Later, but uh, lay me down in peace and sleep. I know some of you need to wake up, but uh, for that, thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. If you're awake all night worrying about something, you need the peace that passes all understanding. The Lord Jesus Christ, I will lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. And then Hebrews 13, 6, And so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. You see, the gospel is God's good news. It is salvation. It is hope. It is triumph. It is acquittal from the guilt of sin. It is acceptance by God. It is freedom from a legalistic self-effort. It's deliverance from power of indwelling sin. 
It's victory over suffering and death. We can rejoice this afternoon in Romans 8, 31 through 39. Wonderful verses. And the next time life begins to get you down, go to Romans 8, 31 to 39 and read that again and be reminded of your great security in the Lord Jesus. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father,